The Week in Doubt, religious news stories from a skeptical perspective, random musings on everything from pop culture to politics, and even audio documentaries on weird and interesting topics like Krampus and the history of the holidays. The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, the host of The Week in Doubt, and this is episode 339. No shoutouts or house cleaning this week, so let's get right to it. I think I'm only going to cover two stories today, but they share a common thread. They both feature representatives of the law overstepping their boundaries regarding what should be the separation of church and state. Both stories are somewhat disturbing in their own right, but this first one is disturbing because it involves a cop, or a sheriff's deputy to be exact, uh, using his position of authority to essentially force a woman to undergo a baptism, and according to the wording of some news sources, he may have groped her as well. Uh, So yeah, disturbing stuff. I'll read a bit from this Newsweek article. Okay, so this is dated October 2nd and it's entitled, Woman Claims a Tennessee Sheriff's Deputy Stripped to His Underwear and Baptized Her in a Lake Following Traffic Stop. And it's by K. Thor Jensen. Cool name. Okay, uh, so it starts, After being pulled over by a Hamilton County Sheriff's Deputy, a woman claims that the officer stripped down to his underwear and forcibly baptized her in a lake. Now she's suing the county for $11 million. Wow. Okay, so the Chattanooga Times Free Press reports that Chandel Marie or Chandel Marie Riley filed her suit against Hamilton County over the incident which occurred earlier this year. In Riley's version of events, she was driving in town on February 6th when she purchased cigarettes at a gas station where one of the deputies, Daniel Wilkie, happened to be. And so the story will touch on this, but I guess a second deputy was brought in by the first to act as a witness to the baptism. And these guys' mugshots are just so infuriating. They both have these kind of smug smirks, kind of a... a, uh, cat who ate the canary kind of look. She claims that Wilkie followed her in his vehicle and pulled her over outside the home of a friend of Riley's on suspicion that she had methamphetamine in her car. He ordered her to leave her vehicle and performed a full body search, including demanding that she, in quotes, reach under her shirt and pull out her bra and shake the bra and shirt. Riley said she requested a female officer conduct the search, which Wilkie refused. And I should stop to say the photos embedded in the article, I don't know if that's technically mug shots or if it's just their kind of work ID or whatever it is. Um, But anyway, Riley said that when the body search came up with nothing, the deputy asked if she had any illegal substances in her car. Riley admitted that a single marijuana roach was in the vehicle, hidden within a pack of cigarettes. Wilkie searched the vehicle and, according to the lawsuit, began verbally abusing Riley. He then asked her if she believed in Jesus Christ and was saved. 
After a conversation, Riley alleges that Wilkie told her that he would not take her to jail if she went into her friend's home and grabbed towels for a quote-unquote baptism. She did what he said and then followed the deputy in his patrol car to Saudi Lake. Good old Saudi Lake. Once there, they were joined by Deputy Jacob Goforth. That's the guy's name, Goforth. And it's spelled that way, too. Kind of a, a fitting name for a brainwashed Christian acolyte. Who Wilkie said was there as a witness. According to Riley, Wilkie stripped down to his underwear and led her into the lake, where she walked in up to her waist before Wilkie placed one hand on her back and another on her chest, submerging her underwater. And I don't know if the alleged groping took place here or earlier during the aforementioned body search. But it continues, the pair then walked out of the lake and dried off, and Riley said she was then charged with possession of a controlled substance and given a suspended sentence. WTVQ reached out to the sheriff's department and obtained a copy of the complaint against Riley. The department statement does not mention the baptism, saying only that Riley had been pulled over for tinted window and obstructed license plate violations. Riley is suing for $1 million in compensatory damages and an additional $10 million in punitive damages. This is not the only misconduct allegation currently pending towards Wilkie. He is being sued along with Deputy Bobby Brewer in relation to an incident where he is accused of hitting a man named James Mitchell, who was beat who, it should probably be who had been, it says was, so a typo there, who had been handcuffed after a traffic stop. The alleged incident was captured on video. So I think it goes without saying that if things went down the way this woman describes, that these two deputies should definitely be punished. Uh, they should have their badges taken. Uh, if charges can be brought against them, they should be. Uh, I'll leave it up to you to decide whether or not <laughs> $11 million uh, is an appropriate amount. Okay, so most of you will probably be aware of this second story. When the initial shooting took place, this story was all over the news. It's a follow-up to that story about the female police officer who shot an unarmed black man in his own apartment while he was uh, apparently sitting on the couch eating ice cream. Supposedly, she mistook the man's apartment for her own, entered, and thinking he was an intruder, shot him. This story has never really sat right with me. Supposedly, she did live in a building where the apartments look uh, really similar. But even still, supposedly there were still differences. I think the victim had a mat or rug in front of his door. The inside of the apartment, the furniture layout, etc. was different. And he lived on a different floor. I think he lived right above her or something like that. I believe she initially claimed she saw the man coming towards her, and that's why she shot. We now know, as I said before, he apparently died on the couch eating ice cream. So there's only a few different possibilities, right? I mean, if it was an actual accident where her judgment was so off she really thought someone else's apartment was her own, you would think that she would have to have been, you know, maybe wasted, either blackout drunk or high out of her mind or something. And even then, I've been wasted or foobar my fair share in the past, and I've always still been able to at least recognize my own front door. But there are stories of drunk people ending up in the wrong house or apartment, etc. 
But I guess that's kind of moot in a way, because according to the toxicology report presented at trial, uh, supposedly she wasn't intoxicated, unless someone fudged the results or something like that. Maybe I'm being too cynical. Uh, maybe she, you know, maybe, maybe she could have been sober as the uh, proverbial judge and was just honestly confused by the building layout, which is still so hard for me to wrap my head around. I'm a goofball who makes mistakes all the time, but even I have trouble seeing myself doing that. Maybe if I had just moved in or something, but still, uh, you don't notice the doormat, the differences even in the dark between the interiors. I guess another possibility is that she wasn't drunk or wasted and uh, that she's just mentally or emotionally unstable or someone who gets spooked way too easily, in which case she shouldn't have been on the force in the first place. The last possibility, I guess, is that she knew it wasn't her apartment and intentionally killed the man for some reason. I have no idea, but it's a very tragic and bizarre case. And so now it's in the news again because she was found guilty of murder and everyone's now talking about how the victim's brother, a devout Christian, forgave her in court and even hugged her. And then the judge hugged her too and gave her a Bible. And I think I read they prayed together. Uh, but why don't I read a bit from this article? And so this is from the Washington Post. It's dated October 3rd and it's by Hannah Knowles. Amber Geiger was hugged by her victim's brother and a judge, igniting a debate about forgiveness and race. On October 2nd, after Amber Geiger received her 10-year sentence for the murder of Botham Jean, I believe that's how the last name is pronounced. I, the last thing I want to do is uh, get the, the victim's last name wrong. So it's either Jean or Jean, I think, or Jean, I think it's Jean. Jean's brother and judge, Tammy Kemp, hugged the convicted murderer and they're sourcing Reuters here. The first hug was stunning enough, a young man embracing his brother's killer for nearly a minute in the middle of the courtroom, just after telling the woman, I forgive you. I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. 18-year-old Brant Jean, or Jean rather, assured Amber Geiger, the former Dallas police officer convicted Tuesday for shooting both of Jean. Yeah, we already went through that. As he ate, I heard it, as he ate ice cream in his own home. Geiger said she aimed to kill out of fear after entering the wrong apartment by mistake. Jurors said it was murder. Then came another unlikely embrace from the judge in the case that sparked renewed protests Wednesday as Geiger received a 10-year sentence that some called a slap in the face. With the emotional trial wrapped up, Judge Tammy Kemp walked over in her black robe to give Geiger a Bible. Then she wrapped her arms around Geiger and murmured to her. Together they prayed. The two extraordinary moments would polarize just like the case that led up to them, raising fresh questions about race and a white officer's fatal shooting of a black man. For some, the hugs and words of understanding were testament to the power of radical compassion, often rooted in religious convictions, a spirit of forgiveness, faith, and trust, as the Dallas Police Department put it in a Wednesday evening tweet. And then it goes on to talk about how uh, Ted Cruz, bleh, I can't stand Ted Cruz, chimed in uh, speaking about quote-unquote Christian love, etc. But others were confused, troubled, and outraged. They saw the latest feel-good episode in a long history of black people extending quick absolution to white people in the face of horrific wrongs. 
Black people, when they experience injustice, there's almost an expectation that we will immediately forgive and therefore can sort of move on. Jamar, I think it is, Jamar Tisby, an African-American historian and writer, told the Washington Post. So I think a lot of people are reacting that we have a right to be angry, a right to grieve, a right to want justice. Okay, so I don't want to be too grinchy. I do think uh, that it's moving to witness this kind of show of forgiveness. And also we're used to viewing judges as the stern authority figures, which I guess, you know, they should be. <laughs> that it's eh, kind of nice, I guess, to see a judge hug a defendant or a, a convicted criminal uh, in this case. But what I find troubling is the involvement or the presence of religion. Who knows? I don't want to be too uncharitable. Maybe this judge and the brother are both really nice people who would still have displayed forgiveness and compassion even without religion. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of other self-identified Christians who wouldn't have been so forgiving. But still, my guess is that their religious beliefs, the Christian doctrine of forgiveness, etc., is at least partially responsible for their compassionate attitude. And you might be saying, well, what the hell is wrong with that? If their belief in their religion makes them a better, more forgiving person, isn't that good? In a way, I guess, but as a non-believer and as someone who embraces humanist principles, I don't think we should or do need literal belief in these man-made religions to be good or moral people. And when you step back and consider that religious indoctrination was probably at least partly responsible for this heartwarming display, it kind of takes some of the shine off of it in my eyes. And then there's the whole thing about, you know, the principle of separation of church and state. And, and you know, you have this judge handing someone a Bible and praying with them. Uh, that being said, I do think generally speaking, you know, forgiveness, if it's sincere, can be a very powerful and uh, cathartic thing. But I definitely get the people who have a problem with this, too. That, you know, they think that forgiveness in this instance is kind of wrongheaded and people should be angry and outraged over the senseless death of an unarmed black man or anyone, you know, sitting in their own home eating ice cream. Now, if you're eating sherbet, that's, you know, a totally different situation. Uh, yeah, just my lame attempt at trying to breathe some levity into this uh, depressing episode. When I was younger, I used to think that Sherbet was uh, Sherbert, kind of like Qbert. But oh well. Uh, with that, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. As always, thanks for listening, everyone. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, even though I'm not that active there. Uh, you can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to support the show monetarily so I don't have to swing a hammer for a living anymore, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.